Hi, my name is Ellie Cody, and this is Manhattan Sideways. On today's episode, I interview Michael Glass. Michael is a current artist in residence at the Cell Theater and is one of my absolute favorite people to spend time with in New York. Here's what Betsy Bober Pallavi, founder of Manhattan Sideways, had to say about Michael and his work. Michael Glass is a true gift to New York. Not only is he a brilliant man and an incredibly talented artist that is constantly thinking out of the box, but he is a superb human being. He has a heart of gold. It has been a joy to get to know him and to develop a close friendship these past several years. Never did Michael expect to land in Manhattan, but like so many others, once he spent time here, he could not tear himself away. Back in the 1990s, he rented studio space in Hell's Kitchen on West 52nd Street and has never left. Michael's resume is impressive, having attended art schools in Boston, London, and New York. He has participated in multiple interactive art installations, curated many art shows featuring both his own art and that of others. His work has been shown in galleries and museums throughout the United States and around the world. Presently, he is involved with a fascinating project at the Power Station on West 53rd Street, where he is creating a mural celebrating a long list of musicians who have recorded in this renowned space over the years. Michael's art installations, magnificent portraits and sculptures are always a commentary on life, revealing his passion and his desire to encourage people to confront everyday issues that they might otherwise choose to ignore. His career as an artist has allowed him to handle distressing times in the real world while creating an imaginary world and to gently figure out how to balance the two. Ellie and I are thrilled to include Michael in our podcast series, not as a brick and mortar business owner, but as someone who makes his living as a working artist and as a representative speaker for the non-establishment art scene that has been so much a part of New York's history. So Michael, if I could please have you start by introducing yourself. Hi, I'm Michael Glass. Okay, and then I would love to hear you talk a bit about having been in the arts in New York City for now decades, um, (laughs) and what brought you to New York. So I actually came to New York on a fluke. I had finished college and spent a year in Asia, and then I was renovating a loft in Boston and getting ready to settle there and build my life there. And uh, one day I had to move my sister to New York, this is just after like a year's renovation on a, a loft space. And I had to return the truck uh, to a place in Harlem that turned out to be closed. And they said their alternative location is downtown on West 4th Street in Lafayette. And I went to return the truck there and did so. And then there was a big banner that said New York Academy of Art. And so after finishing up, I went just to explore and I saw this place, fell in love went back to Boston, got all my stuff, and moved to New York to basically uh, come study at this school that was devoted to the training of artists in the academic tradition. And what was your background in art at that time? I had gone to liberal arts uh, college, Pomona in, in California, and concentrated in art. There was no major in it. And within that concentration, I mostly was in the dark room because the most inspiring teacher happened to be the photography teacher, but I hadn't had any real formal training uh, before that. And even during college, it was sort of a, like, 
explore your feeling kind of art department. And then I went back to Boston, took some courses, and then um, ended up at the Academy. But in retrospect, I think I always was an artist because all I ever wanted to do when I was a kid was make stuff. It just wasn't formal. And what specifically drew you to the Academy, right? Because there are schools up in Boston. You could have stayed up there. But why was that feeling strong enough to get you to just, you know, go back and drop everything and come back to New York? You know, I don't think anyone's ever asked me that. And I don't think I've ever thought about it. But the, the, the thing that occurs to me as you do was that I think... I was drawn to it the way some people are drawn to religion after they've had a tough go of things. My life was pretty much a mess and and didn't have much focus. And it was just, I think, that time and that place in that mindset that something clicked and said, wow, you know, this is like a structure with which I could build a framework in which to have some sort of life that made sense and I'm also realizing now there were a lot of people that sort of approached their training there with this sort of religious like fervor and unlike them I did not see it as an end in itself that this academic training is very appealing to some people who don't necessarily have a lot of ideas but instead want to champion technique and just get it as good at it as possible. But then to me, it sort of became a bit of a pissing contest where, you know, the goal was to just get better than the other person as opposed to having a vehicle with which to explore yourself and and the world around you. And so where did you go from there after graduating the academy? I basically built a life in New York. I, I met my wife through the academy and we settled here and I got a studio and um, I just started, you know, walking the walk, sort of making it up as I went along. What does that mean to you, walking the walk as an artist in New York City? So it's, I think it's a lot, I mean, there's a lot of dilettantism in the arts and there are a lot of people identify as artists, but sort of hide behind their survival job in order to sort of have it both ways, to say that they're an artist, but also be able to only devote a a small amount of time to their craft. And it becomes sort of a, like a a comfortable crutch in a way. Um, So you can have that identity, but you know, at the same time, have a built in excuse for, for not getting to it. And I just sort of uh, much to my wife's dismay, you know, sort of dropped everything in favor of making that my primary goal and just filling in the the gaps with whatever I had to do to, to you know, eke by. I think it would be useful at this point to be able to imagine some of your work. Um, maybe you could describe a couple pieces that you feel represent your thinking. Boy, <laughs> um, I'm sort of eclectic. I have this show up at the Nancy Manitarian's The South Theater in Chelsea right now, and my nickname there is Max, which has been shortened from Maximalist. And um, I have a really tough time sort of staying on any track, you know, as to that framework comment before it sort of framework, work. So one day I was going from my apartment to my studio, and I was riding my bike down Broadway, and it was before light so in that like the faint glint of a traffic light i i passed a bag at an intersection and something 
was off to me and I got off my bike to investigate and I was just a couple of feet away and my heart stopped because I thought I saw a dead baby in the in the bag and it wasn't until I actually grabbed the bag to pull it out of the road that I realized it was a doll and you know that traumatic moment passed and I threw the bag on my handlebars rode to my studio threw the bag onto a pile of stuff and that would have been the end of the story but some months after that, we, we had our first kids, these twins. And my daughter uh, was given this crib toy of a stuffed animal that like the minute it got put in her crib, she grabbed onto it and she's never let go since she's 21. Mm-hmm. And, and um, you know, I still can't even tease her about this, this thing, which to me is just so foreign as to why she loves it. But then she lost it one day. She was like a, a year old or so. And it was like the earth stopped spinning. And it took a couple of days, but we found it. But in that time, I learned this concept of the transitional object of youth. And it's the doll or the blanket or stuffed animal that a child uses to help transition from the mother to independence. And I was back in my studio one day and I came across that bag with the doll in it and my heart sunk because I realized projecting my daughter's experience onto the doll that I had found that there was some other little kid out there somewhere who loved this object every bit as much as my daughter loved her black doggy. So the name of the show found and the poster that we used to publicize it is an allusion to the fact that way back then, this is uh, over 20 years ago, I, I made this poster that said found doll and I plastered the Upper West Side looking for the original owner, hoping to find that person, probably her, and and never did. And the craziest thing started happening after that. I started finding dolls everywhere. And some people suggest that they were finding me, but we had another kid by then and like our whole lives were like going from one kid thing to the next kid thing. And it seemed like like everywhere I went, just these dolls were appearing that had nobody connected to them. So I started collecting them. And before too long, I had amassed this, this giant pile of dolls in my studio. And at the exhibition that I have right now, the surprise that people learn is that all the dolls in this room filled with dolls that is like sort of designed to be off-putting when people first encounter it uh, were found on the New York City streets and to me each one of them had this rich history of being this vessel that that some person was pouring all their emotions into but unlike with my daughter that history was suddenly just truncated and rather than having a happy ending they 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 were orphaned and to me, that the, the dolls are a symbol of innocence, and the story that that is attached to them is a metaphor for the loss of innocence in our culture, which I think is a, a powerful message that can be applied to a lot of things. I really feel like my role as an artist is somewhat of like a 
informal documentarian of the time and place that I live. I think an artist's role is to really sort of just absorb the zeitgeist and then filter through their specific lens, their observations, so that you make these de facto time capsules. In that spirit, I sort of did abandon my classical training. The technique was definitely an end in itself um, to stay in one lane, to try to promote the idea of classicism through painting and sculpture, you know, there are sort of boundaries that you're supposed to stay within. And I just, I have boundary issues, I guess. And so like one of my favorite pieces I made recently is a a piece called Papa Pick Me Up, which is a kinetic work. Actually, it's a fountain that was inspired by a video that someone sent me that frankly, I wish they hadn't because it depicted this horrendous scene of a little boy in Syria whose legs had been blown off in a barrel bomb explosion. And I think I had a true catharsis in making this piece because I hadn't even been aware of what I was embarking on when I started. I was actually painting a portrait at the time, and I always like to create ballast by having some project that's sort of more visceral and more like employing more tools of the trade than just smushing oily paint on canvas. And I started just collecting sticks from my yard and other found objects. And I was making something and I wasn't sure what it was. And it wasn't until the thing was about three or four feet tall that I attached a doll torso to it. And I realized that everything I had been doing previous to that was processing the information I had seen in this video in which this little boy had lost his legs and the dad was shown running away from this pancake building with him. He was pure white. He looked like an angel, except he had no legs. And the thing I'd been making turned out to be like lots and lots of legs regenerating. There were bones and there were sticks. And when I put the torso on it, I realized, wow, you know, I'm I'm sort of processing that information in a way that I think is the best reason to be an artist in the first place. There's a lot of inconvenient reasons to have a life in the arts, you know, especially in New York where life is a grind. But then you have moments like this where, you know, I I was literally not sleeping. I was having a really tough time after seeing this video. I don't like scary stuff. And I ended up making this piece that, I mean, take it for what it is. It's pretty gruesome to look at, but I processed the information that was rattling around in my brain and got it out of there and was able to come to grips with what I had seen, put it in context and made this thing that I think is very compelling, you know, albeit difficult to look at. But um, for me, it's sort of an exhilarating example of why to choose this life in the first place because, you know, I got to process the information in a constructive way so meanwhile and this is a difficult question i know but at the same time as you're working on something like that you are completing portraits um sort of classical portraits for new yorkers who want that and who will pay you for it so how do you balance the things that pay the bills with the things that you feel most strongly about and are able to experiment with and actually grow as an artist. It's something that I struggle with and I think a lot of people do. Yeah, I mean, if you use the word balance, I would say I do so very ungracefully. 
it's a very wobbly walk to sort of straddle those two worlds. And I, I don't know if it's because I'm a male and my brain works that way. It's a little, you know, stereotypical, you know, to say that, I suppose. But like, I, I feel like I have a, like a very single track mind and each of those things exists on a very different track. So I am at constant warfare with myself trying to balance those two and I feel like a spoiled brat because I should feel very lucky that I'm spending all day applying my craft in one manner or another but in a way it feels like the difference between dentistry and football I just like I I don't know how the two are even related because one has to do with applying technique towards something and the other has to do with channeling emotion um so that happy middle ground is where i've been trying to explore in the last few years it used to be keep them completely bifurcated and have a survival job you know portraiture or whatever it was at the time and then my own practice which is you know basically putting my manias down in one medium or another and hoping somebody would want to share that on their wall. Pretty stupid. (laughs) And um, I think what it's turned into in the last few years is trying to take charge of the content in the portraits by picking the clients I work with selectively, Um, in some cases because they don't necessarily know exactly what they want, some cases because they trust me to use my own vision, and, and in some other cases, combination of both. But to try to infuse those paintings with as much as of myself as possible, despite the fact that I'm painting somebody else, and try to make a work that operates as a painting in addition to it, checking the boxes to qualify it as a portrait. And so um, it's not working great. And so um, now I'm back to this idea of, of keeping them separate. And the way that I'm trying to assuage my frustration right now not getting to do whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it spoiled brat it's funny I got here and Betsy offered me chocolate and and my tongue tastes great right now and and an analogy that I use a lot is like if you have to eat a meal and the balance of the meal is the meat and the potatoes and the vegetables and so forth and that's 95% of the meal by volume that you just ate and then at the end of the meal you eat this delicious truffle and it might be just five percent of the volume of the food that you've just eaten but it's the last thing you ate and it just takes over not only your mouth but your whole spirit because it was so delicious when i'm engaged in activities in the art realm now that do not speak directly to satisfying whatever that is inside me that i feel like i need to express i close my eyes and i think back at a moment that is sort of a parallel to eating that truffle, something like, you know, making that sculpture or something. And literally, I'll close my eyes, I'll conjure up that feeling, and I try to let it wash over my whole body so that despite the fact I'm doing something I don't want to do at that moment, I'm trying to nourish myself with this, like, pure feeling of ecstasy that I am fortunate enough to achieve on any level, to any degree. How do you feel you relate to the other artists that you know in New York, um, relate or compare? So I am by far the very best artist. And I, <laughs> 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 I'm glad you got that. You know, um, 
I have to say, and I'm not using this as a cop-out because I, I, I like to be very truthful and direct. I don't really compare myself um, and I don't judge. I think I sort of stepped away from that whole classical realist realm because of that component of it that is that pissing contest that I referred to and you know for me it's about the person their vision and their commitment and passion to expressing uh, their vision. I think the better word and the first word that I used was relate to um, and maybe even collaborate with. For me it it completely boils down to passion and and commitment and and, you know people either have it they don't I'm just so attracted to that so that when I see it, I just figure there's some way to get something from each other and to collaborate. And in the opportunities I've had to curate shows, it's basically been on that principle alone because I really believe in synergies. I don't think that any of us are so different from each other that even if we have different concerns and different media uh, that we're drawn to, like we're not ever really dealing with different issues from each other. We're just sort of looking at the same geometric solid from a different perspective, you know, and exploring a different facet of it. So, you know, for me, I, I, I don't actually even go out and look at a lot of art. And it's one, I think, a time thing. And two is this weird purity thing I have where, like, I really feel my responsibility is to try to dig stuff out of my brain and, like, put them on the record somewhere and there's just too much information living in New York and and I think that um, you know spending a lot of time looking at other finished material as opposed to um, just soaking in the raw material that's all around us but the human derived uh, material people's energies and then just the city itself and all its components to me that's sort of like the fuel that I need to ingest in order to operate I don't know if that answered your question. No, it does. It also resonates. Thank you for that. Yeah. <laughs> no, you're welcome. I, you know, it's so sad because I meet a lot of tourists in the city and they're just going from one branded activity to the next. And like, I said, no, if you want to experience New York, just walk around. Let's talk about the broader New York sure. art scene and the galleries. I think I'm a lot less tolerant of people in that scene than I am of artists. I, you know, and, and I shouldn't, paint with a broad brush. I'm sure there's a lot of very nice people um, involved in the scene, but the business that they're involved in, I find to be very sort of corrupt and corrupting. Um, I used to, when I was younger, believe that the Venn diagram of art had one circle devoted to like the pure passion of art, the love of art, of looking at making it, and then another circle with the business of art. I thought there was a healthy enough overlap to find a a place within that area that was a satisfying and b uh, capable of providing a a stable existence and the older i get i'm not even convinced that they touch anymore like that the business of art to me is so antithetical to the actual making of art that I'm not sure what to do. I, there are two lanes for, you know, quote unquote survival jobs. And one is to like still be using 
the same tools and materials to make stuff to you know then sell and the other is to do something completely different at this point I, I can't do anything else so I'm stuck in that first place and so for me the conundrum is can I do something I absolutely love and then be rewarded for it and so I just turned 57 I'm like starting to I don't know, probably equivalent of most people's like puberty or something. I like way behind in my my understanding of how the world works. And I continue to learn these things that absolutely blow me away. I don't know if this is true or not, but it was told to me by a source who would know. So I have no reason not to believe it. I thought I knew all the tricks. And I, today I just learned that Larry Gagosian, sort of the alpha fish in the sea, no longer sells... 100% shares in any important work that he sells. He retains 25% ownership so that no one can ever resell a piece that he sold them without his permission and his involvement, which gives him all sorts of opportunities to do all kinds of funny things. The business of art, I mean, there's two ways to do it. You can be honest. I know a lot of honest dealers and they're mostly you know, looking for other areas of work these days from carpet sales to, to assessing values of people's collections and, and the like, or they just step out of it entirely and start um, real estate or whatever. Um, and then there are people that are trying to play within the system and the system basically is set up like any other business, I guess, to, to maximize profits. And in terms of, you know, the, the real engine of the art world, the galleries that are you know, considered blue chip and the auction houses and, and the art fairs and so forth, you know, there's I mean, certainly no meritocracy. But what there basically is, is people that would be very good investment bankers trying to create commodity markets in people's work. And I wish that I could hold my nose and jump in and become part of that because it would make selling work much more streamlined, but I just can't do it. And I always tell people, you know, again, there are, are honest players in the business, but like in terms of like the, the real fast lane in that business, yeah, you could do it and you could work with the mafia too. I just, you know, and I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I just like, with the limited exposure that I've had to that realm, been really shaken with like how much it has nothing to do with art. I've had galleries tell me what's art have to do with it. So I think there are different ways to measure success and I've never been motivated by money and certainly not by you know, fame or celebrity or attention or any of that kind of stuff. And so the thing that makes me most happy is to make stuff and the challenge becomes how do I maximize my, my, my time that I can make things. And I feel like I have so many friends that expend most of their energy in trying to play the game that I think it's A, a tragic waste of time and B, I think it's soul deadening. And I rather just stay outside of it and continue along the bumpy road that I'm on and have good experiences and bad experiences, but basically celebrate the fact that I am having experiences. I, 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 I much more value process over product. And so the whole 
life of artists, you know, high points and the low points is exciting in a way. And, you know, the, the moments of drudgery might include like trying to figure out how to attach one thing to another thing, which sounds stupid on its face. But on the other hand, you know, you're using ingenuity and foresight and maybe materials you haven't used before. And there's like always something exciting to be found, even in the most mundane moments. So that for me is is success, you know, being able to live my life in a, a constant state of exploration and, you know, occasional amazement. And I'm just not interested in the business of art. So I, I basically did a lot of shows that were commentaries on it. I'd first did the show called Fair, which was an exploration of the mechanics of the art world using the art fair paradigm as my vehicle for that inspection. And then these three shows, um, two I co-curated with a woman named Jen Wallace of Nason Art, and then one uh, called The Unseen that I did on my own with a lot of help in terms of um, you know getting off the ground. And they were created in opposition to the art world. And as a result, I think interpreted by some to be somewhat angry screeds about not being included. Mm -hmm. Even the names sort of suggested that there was some, you know, salon de refuse element to it. And it really wasn't. It was supposed to be about just extolling the spirit of art and sharing that with people. So now having moved away from these like big curations and into this current project that I'm involved in, I'm focused much more on what things are just inherently as opposed to, you know, what they are relative to what this other construct is. Mm. And I think it's, it's going to be much more celebratory that way. Also important to note that the Salon de Refusé turned into the century's <laughs> most revered artists. Like the and anyone who was on those walls is now in museums as being just pioneers of art. So, you know, there not necessarily the worst thing to be compared <laughs> to. Um, one of the stories that Betsy and I have heard you tell is about when you first moved into Hell's Kitchen and some of the warnings you got from your friends and how you responded could you share yeah so one specific warning um came from a friend who was a lifelong new yorker he grew up on the upper east side and had learned how to navigate the city without letting it overpower him i personally came from a tiny little town um and was constantly overwhelmed by the city but in hell's kitchen specifically uh, the thing that really bore down on me was the homelessness. And I just couldn't ignore like the, the reality around me and not let it weigh me down. Um, you know, there are homeless people inside the building, outside the building, on the stoop of the building, um, you know, drug addicts, prostitutes. And I had no money and nothing whatever I had I would always give to people and and I just my my heart was always bleeding for them so this friend of mine gave me this piece of practical advice and Michael if you're going to survive here you have to harden your heart to all this stuff a homeless person is sleeping on your stoop step over him 
someone's bleeding, run the other way. If someone asks you for money, don't acknowledge them or at best say sorry. And I try to gird myself one day and I say, all right, I'm going to do this. I'm going to like, I'm going to adopt this heartless attitude and be a New Yorker and, and be able to go to work without holding back tears. I think it lasted for like the first person that I passed. And to make a long story short, I spent the next year almost exclusively painting homeless people and, and you know, other people of misfortune. And I, um, you know, sort of became known as the guy in the neighborhood who would actually let people, you know, come up to his warm studio and they could drink beer and even take a little cash away just in exchange for sitting there. And um, as he painted them, but soon it sort of became like night of the living dead. And I just had this like huge contingent of people constantly trying to get to the studio. And, and eventually my neighbors put an end to it because we had a couple of bad episodes. But um, the takeaway from it was I got to engage with these people. I got to see that they were no different than me or my friend or anybody else. But the, I'd say the coolest part of it was that with that same friend in mind, I got to recontextualize this thing that was part of all of our reality in a way just by sort of changing it from real life to two dimensions, you know, an image on a canvas. And in that context, display it either in my studio or in the gallery or whatnot and compel people like my friend to look at that very thing that they willfully chose to avoid at all costs. And boy, I mentioned before, there being more bad reasons to be an artist than good reasons in terms of having a practical, you know, easy, comfortable existence. And that's right near the top of them. The idea that you can, just by the nature of changing something, just tweaking it a little bit, you can get people to look at and think about things that they otherwise are willfully dismissive of. Thanks so much for listening. My name is Ellie, and this has been a podcast by Manhattan Sideways. Be sure to check out our website, www.sideways.nyc, and follow us on social media, at NY Sideways. See you next time.